Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour with some more great guests. You can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, coming up on today's show, it's shaping up to be the great question of our time. Artificial intelligence is moving at a pace that even its creators never really expected. Can we control it before it controls us? EU regulators are making the first steps and Sarah Meyer-West of the Artificial Intelligence Institute Institution will be joining me to untangle this very complicated issue. And back home, as organised crime featured large in the news this week, we're going to look at the figures that are involved in how criminal gangs are stashing their money in the modern era with John Mooney of the Sunday Times. And finally, bumper revenues and exports were outlined this week by the government and Enterprise Ireland. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times is going to be joining me to outline what this might mean for the future and if tax cuts will be a major discussion point in the months ahead for the government. So we're going to start off today with that issue because this week the government predicted surging corporate tax income are going to, is going to help widen its budget surplus to €10 billion Euro this year and to €16.2 billion in 2024. Four, but God love them, they're still trying to temper expectations by outlining a plan to channel some of this largesse into a reserve fund. But what can we expect this year? We're joined now by Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Cliff, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Mandy, as ever. Now, Cliff, can you start off by outlining exactly what the surplus is and how it's been generated? Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the gap between the revenue the state takes in and the, and the cash that it spends and I suppose uh, those of us with, with greyer hair like myself are more used to um, dealing with deficits over the years when the state spends a bit more than it takes in in cash revenue and has to borrow to make the difference that's mm. been the general position in Ireland and indeed in many countries for many years uh, exchequers aren't really like households they can afford generally to borrow a bit over the years uh, but Ireland's finances have turned around uh, pretty dramatically in the last few years and now uh, revenues we're seeing coming into the exchequer are, 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 well, are well ahead of spending and I suppose the old story that we've spoken about before Mandy is the main reason for that corporation tax uh, getting a, which took in about what three to four billion a year back in 2014-2015 now well up over 20 billion a year heading towards 25 that's been one of the factors that's transformed the exchequer. Income tax has also been really strong. Uh, we've seen really strong increases in employment in the economy over the last few years, a little bump through COVID, uh, but that was quickly recouped. Mm. Uh, so we're, we're in this position of having uh, really significant surpluses. And I think one of the things that happened this week, and, and perhaps it's been a little bit missed is that for the first time the Department of Finance laid out its expectations for the surplus for the next three or four years. And in their view, at least, uh, while they continue to make warnings about the risks on uh, corporation tax, their forecasts are for very strong surpluses over the next three or four years, which really transforms the outlook for the public finances. Yeah, and ministers are constantly reminding us, and you and I have both said exactly the same thing, that this corporation tax can dry up at any time and therefore we can't rely upon it. Uh, everyone's beginning to sound a little bit like chicken licking now in, in right, one yeah. sense. That I, the- I, was, 
Yeah, I was talking to someone earlier this week and we were talking talking about the other, the boy that, that cried wolf. Yeah, that's exactly. Um, he, he did remind me that the wolf did appear eventually, of course. Eventually. So, I don't know. But, but I even noticed that they're changing the language in relation to these uh, corporate tax receipts now kind of referring to them as windfall taxes. Like, they're yeah. exceptional. I mean, when does this return year after year become non-exceptional if they're building it into their own forecast. So really what I'm asking you here is it's going to be really hard to convince sectors who are screaming for money um, that there is there validity still to their claims that the corporation tax thing might be turned off at some point. We just don't know, Mandy. I mean, that's the honest answer. Uh, And one of the uh, one of the tax accountants put out a note this week uh, on on this uh, on on the corporate tax issue and and said you know maybe we should look at them as recurring windfall issues mm-hmm. windfall taxes uh, with his with his tongue in his cheek um, we we just don't know and uh, I don't think the Department of Finance knows uh, I don't think any of the economic forecasters know uh, we we've benefited from really significantly from a, a big restructuring of multinational companies. Uh, since about 2015 when they moved a lot more of their assets to Ireland, physical assets and and also intellectual property assets. And it's led to a kind of a spike in taxation, which is much, much greater than anyone had had anticipated. And what the Department of Finance means when it says that these are windfall revenues, it means it looks at the activities of these companies in Ireland, what they produce, what they sell overseas, the number of people they employ, and it tries to come up with kind of a an estimate maybe of what, what, what the profitability of the sector is and what might be expected then in terms of, uh, in terms of profits, or sorry, sorry, in terms of tax mm. on, those, on that profit. Uh, and it reckons that the amount that's been taken is much greater than that. And of course, that's due to international accounting practices and mm. money being rooted through Ireland, uh, a story that we've, uh, we've seen examined and picked apart over the years. So yes, we are vulnerable if um, those arrangements are reversed in some way as they could be or if one of the big three or four or five companies that are huge taxpayers here runs into some really serious difficulties Mm. but there are plus sides as well mandy in terms of the outlook um reasons to believe that that tax could go up rather than fall so it's really an uncertainty but i i do think the uncertainty is a reason certainly that that you can't absolutely bank on this continuing in perpetuity that you know we're in a period now of maybe the next two or three years when we can reasonably expect this to continue but it wouldn't be wise to budget on it continuing for the foreseeable no but i i really do think calling it a windfall tax is a valiant endeavor at kind of framing it in the yeah, public psyche I, I think they've almost i think they're, they're keeping the language but have almost given up on the argument yeah maybe that's it. at this stage so just turning to that what they're actually going to do with this largesse so their original plan is to put a portion of the excess receipts into this rainy day fund i think it was six billion and um, but yeah. some new things being mooted by michael mcgrath about what he might do yeah, I mean, there's a big battle coming up now between, you know, Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue on one side and a lot of the spending ministers on the other. And we'll have to see where the Taoiseach and Tarnish to land, and, uh, land in that uh, in that argument. Uh, Michael McGrath has floated the idea of, of of a separate separate fund. So in other words, you have the what we would call the rainy day fund, what the government calls the National Reserve Fund, which has six billion in it at the moment and, and is capped at eight billion. And that cap could be uh, could be removed and 
Tishak Leavarako was talking about that fund today and he said, look, we should really see it as an anti-austerity fund. And what he means by that was, is that, you know, if if there is some problem over the next few years, we'll have some spare cash. We won't need to uh, immediately increase taxes or cut spending as happened in, you know, after 2008. We'll have some cash in the bank in our fund to, to, to help us through. Uh, and, and that is useful. Um, mm. Michael McGrath is appears to be floating the idea of a, of, a, of another fund. Now, whether technically they'd be two separate funds or two parts of one fund or whatever, we don't know. He's going to publish a discussion paper on it apparently in the next couple of weeks. But the idea is that that would involve investing money and putting it away to help pay some of the bills that we know are coming down the road here in the long term, specifically the aging population. Um, the Fiscal Advisory Council have been banging this drum for a while as well, saying, look, we're going to run into problems here with our state pension payments in the years ahead. We need to put some kind of arrangement in place to make sure we have enough money. And while we've, while we've budget surpluses now, wouldn't it be a good idea to put them aside in an investment fund and have that money to help pay pensions in 10, 5, 10, 15 years' time? Mm. So I think that's all going to happen, but that is not going to uh, remove the row, or not row, but the pressures to... Uh, increase spending and cut tax, uh, I think, on yeah. budget day. And I think we are going to see some of that as well. Yeah, we'll come back to the political uh, uh, discussions on tax in a second. I just want to stick with that long-term planning issue because it's yeah. long been an issue for successive governments. And, you know, many people have argued that consistently what we do as a government in Ireland when there's a recessionary period or a downturn in the economy, we pull back on spending when we should have kept yeah. investing in capital in particular. One could argue that this is just this is actually the crux of the the housing crisis uh, at the moment. So, is there an opportunity now for them to learn from the recent past mistakes? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, as you said, that is the big hangover from the financial crash, um, or one of the big hangovers from the financial crash that we we slash spending on housing and public investment, and we have an economy now that you know doesn't have enough houses, that doesn't have enough capacity in its electricity network doesn't have enough hospitals, you know, doesn't mm. have enough anything, if you like, because that happened. And it happened because it's much easier to cut investment spending in a crisis uh, than it is to cut people's pensions and people's, people's social welfare. And that's entirely understandable. Or to increase taxes, although, of course, that happened as well after 2008. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think if there are big surpluses now, as we expect in the next three or four years, there, there is an option to put money aside and there is an option to try and break that terrible boom to bust cycle that we've seen uh, in the economy so often. Mm. And the flip side of that argument is that it wouldn't be very clever to try and push up spending by significant amounts now because the government is not going to get value for it. Mm. We've seen that it's already having trouble spending all the money it's set aside for housing. Uh, in terms of overall investment, its plans are already for really big increases in investment spending over the next three or four years to levels which are historically high for Ireland and, 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 and high internationally. So, I mean, carrying that off uh, and delivering on it and, and really getting value for people and delivering the kind of projects that, that, that we need is a huge challenge. And, and shoving more money into that, I don't think is... Is, is going to be is going to be ideal no doubt there are there are places where that will happen but in a general way i think the challenge now isn't isn't funding these projects in the short term it's getting them going and, and delivering on them and 
getting around all the uh, regulatory and planning hurdles that we've sp- we've spoken about before. Mm. Um, but if money was set aside in a fund, in a longer term fund, it could help the next time the economy does hit the skids or the public finances hit the skids to ensure we don't repeat the mistakes yeah. we made yeah. back in 2011 slashing investment. Yeah, for sure. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to me, Mandy Johnston. This is Taking Stock on News Talk and I'm talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times about the recent stability and growth programme f- uh, that was published by the government. Cliff, I just want to turn very briefly and finally to the issue of tax cuts. Um, yeah. You know, the public just see the exchequer and the public finances are bulging at the seams Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael in particular have mooted this um, over the past year or so that, you know, people, work needs to be rewarded. Where do you see the argument for this? Just look at it from an economic perspective at the moment. High inflation, increasing sure. interest rates. Is it the right thing to do? And then politically, what do you think is likely? Where will the pressure points be? Well, again, um, Tisha was talking about this today. So will there be tax changes in the budget absolutely there will be um but it would be a big mistake to kind of engage on a head off on a big tax cutting strategy uh because as we've said number one um we don't know whether the um corporate tax receipts are going to continue in the years ahead number two the economy is already at full capacity and we don't really need people spending any more money uh so we don't you know Economically, we don't need to put money into people's pockets. And, and thirdly, you know, all the assessment is that in you know over the next five to ten years, the country's facing really big bills. Um, so it would be a mistake to kind of reduce the tax base at, at a time when um, when those are coming down the down the lines, if you like. Mm. Um, but that said, there's no doubt that there will be tax changes. I mean, there certainly is a case to adjust the income tax system to take account of people getting wage increases, um, and uh, you know, ensuring that the, that that the you know to compensate for inflation and ensuring that. The tax take doesn't increase, you know, for, for that to happen, the, the tax bans need to go up, mm. need to be widened um, and uh, to, to ensure people aren't pushed into higher bans as they get their wage increase. So, yeah, there's absolutely a case for doing that, for indexing the system, for giving people welfare increases to, to account for inflation as well. Mm. What, what there isn't the case for is kind of reviving some of the madcap ideas that we saw in the past, like, you know, abolishing the USC or phasing it out. Mm. or uh you know big cuts in uh, big cuts in income tax because um I, th- I think we'd rule that one it would be a really bad use of, of money in fact so no grand gesture on a political scale then would be wise at this juncture from well that's what that's what economists would say and uh, politically things might, <laughs> very might things might be different and I think it is going to be really interesting to watch the uh, coalition dynamics now because as you say, I mean, will 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 the Taoiseach revive his idea of the thirty percent uh, tax rate, which I don't think he's entirely ever entirely mm. completely abandoned? Um, you know, will their parties are now starting to think of um, framing their manifestos for the next uh, general election, and um, the prospect of surpluses really changes the calculations for all of them. You know, so what promises are, are going to be put before us? Uh, whenever the next election comes, maybe late next year or, or, or early the year after. Yeah. Um, I, I think 
the prospect of surpluses now over the next few years is really going to change politics mm. and really going to change the political argument um, mm. heading up to the next election. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting. Just a final question for you then. If you take the tax pressures, then take the uh, spending pressures and in in invariable wage pressures that we're going to get, w- yeah. where is the, or is there room for a social partnership model to, to emerge now to try and kind of cool things down a little bit, if it were? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think... Um, I think the the government and unions did a did a did a reasonable deal um, last year in terms of pay increases this year, uh, and I think you know public servants did did well enough out of it. I think I know a lot of them will complain that their wage increases were were not fully matching inflation. I think that's been the case for for, for a lot of people, but they, they have got decent increases. And we've avoided the kind of strife that we're seeing in the UK, mm. which I think is very damaging. Very. So uh, it would be good uh, if that could be uh, if that could be repeated in some way. But of course, with a lot of money on the table now and inflation still high, it's going to be very difficult. I think more sensible voices in the union movement have been pushing this idea of a social wage, which is that the government can reward public servants through pay, but it can also reward public servants and the wider population mm. through better services in areas like health and education and childcare and uh, you know giving people more for their money or, or more state services at lower costs or, 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 or at no cost if you like. Yeah, so building uh, in a kind of quid pro quo if you like. Um, exactly, yeah. yeah. So if that model could be, uh, could, be, could be built on, I think it would be the sensible way to go. But with a huge surplus, uh, a lot of, you know, public servants and... and you know, maybe more likely to bang the table and look for cash increases. So, yeah, I think given the uncertainty last year, it was a it was it was a trick that the government and managed to pull off. But pulling it off again could be more challenging. I fear the problem. We'll yeah, the problems of success. Uh, Cliff, absolutely. Thank, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. That was Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Thank you. Pleasure. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Next up, artificial intelligence. Can we control it before it controls us? We'll be discussing after the break. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, if anti-competitive conduct by big tech companies was a problem in the past, the introduction of generative AI is set to make things far worse. So says Sarah Mayers West, and she is from the AI Institute, and she's joining me now to discuss. Sarah, you're very welcome to News Talk. Hi, nice to nice to speak with you. Now, Sarah, we're going to discuss. Um, how regulators are going to try and deal with this uh, situation on a global scale in a moment. But can I kick off today with a a more general sense from you as to where things are at? AI really is the big question of our time now. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of debate around the pace of change and the scale of change and it moving at a pace that nobody, even the creators, never really imagined. So I just want to get your view, first of all, on that joint letter that came from the tech's supremos asking for things to just stop. What do you think was the motivation or their motivation behind that initiative? Well, I think I think around this question, we need to take a step back um, and really, you know, assess what do we even mean by AI and, and, and what is the role that AI is playing um, in the world around us? Um, AI as a term has meant lots of different things over an almost 80-year history. Um, and what we're talking about in the here and now is, um, you know, a set of 
data-centric systems that, you know, process massive pools of data, use lots of computational power to make um, often assessments about us looking for patterns, or in this new version, um, you know, use the same, you know, basic functionality to generate text or images um, that mimic the patterns of, of human speech or, or, or other, other types of activities. So I think that's, that's important um, ground, uh, groundwork to kind of get into what role is AI playing in the world around us. Um, so, you know, AI has been, you know, in development for a long time. It's been used in, it, around us in, uh, for a long time often in ways that we're not aware of. It's, it's already being used to make decisions around, you know, whether you get call, wh- whether you will be called in for a job interview, um, what whether you're going to get access to credit to get a mortgage on your home. Um, we're just not necessarily aware or involved in, you know, that kind of AI decision-making. Mm. Um, what's new about what's what we're seeing now is there's an interface where we can interact with AI, and I think that that's galvanized a lot of excitement and also a lot of anxiety. Hmm. Um, but around the letter, I think it's important that we do create space for a broader public conversation about the potential risks and harms of these systems, of which there are many. I just think that that needs to come from regulators and from the public as opposed to leading, leading it to industry players to lead that conversation. Absolutely. And you make you make a really important point there, which does um, involve how you regulate AI and it is what is AI and, you know, whether you intervene at a company point of view or is it from a policy perspective. So the distinction of what constitutes AI is important to understand in this. But so just let's look at the regulatory landscape maybe for a second. Um, you were writing about, you know, um, how policy may need to start really getting their arms around this problem now. Is it the case that maybe they were behind the curve when tackling tech companies in their infancy and that maybe they can rectify or learn from some of their past mistakes now when it comes to AI? I think that's right. I think that, you know, the good news is we don't have to start from scratch. We have, you know, over a, a decade of you know, hard work to diagnose the potential harms of this technology, to build um, out actionable solutions. Um, So we we don't have to start from a a blank slate here. That said, regulators have very much been on the back foot in letting um, industry players sort of, you know, take the the lead. Um, and, And clearly that hasn't worked in the broad public interest. So I think it is a moment for much more muscular enforcement and, and it, you know, the early signals are that regulators are paying attention and, and want to to get on the ball. And just remind us, Sarah, then, who are the main players on the AI stage that we should be watching now? Sure. I mean, artificial intelligence, as we understand it today, really cannot exist without big tech companies. So it's the Amazons, the Googles, the Microsofts of the world. Um, that are, you know, at the heart of, of AI systems today. And that's because they have control of the key resources needed for artificial intelligence. You know, huge amounts of data produced through commercial surveillance um, and, you know, the, the cloud computing capacity to process that data. So while we'll see a lot of new startups emerging, OpenAI, Anthropic, uh, Cohere, you know, these, these new names that we haven't heard before, 
almost all of those companies have some sort of um, contracting relationship or other tie to the the big three tech firms um, because you can't really produce AI at scale, which is kind of the flavor of this moment. Um, You can't produce it without big tech. Mm. Yeah, and um, one of the criticisms of regulators around the world uh, when trying to now regulate big tech was that, uh, as I say, they didn't start off uh, quickly enough to try and and control them. Um, But one of the criticisms of the tech companies when trying to engage with big institutions like the European Union was that, you know, companies who had moved fast and broken things in Silicon Valley weren't actually capable of dealing with regulatory environments in the same way that maybe more traditional companies were. So do you think that they'll have learned the Amazons and the Apples, that they'll have learned from their previous experience and maybe approach a regulatory system in a more constructive and productive way? It's certainly a a different uh, tone that we're hearing from these companies saying that we need regulation. Um, That is not the, the, the... kind of statement that we would hear from these firms a few years ago. Hmm. Um, that said, when you get into the, the details of what regulation looks like, um, I think that's where, where things start to get complicated. Um, you know, around the EU AI Act and, and certainly in the U.S. as well, we're seeing really ramped up lobbying investments from these companies um, and, and other methods through, you know, trying to fund uh, academic research, uh, you know, standing up, um, you know, groups of small businesses to try and lobby in, in their favor. Um, they're really trying to sort of tilt the playing field in ways that benefit their interests. And I think, you know, we need to uh, really stand up and be prepared for that kind of um, onslaught of activity from from corporate players now. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to me, Mandy Johnston. This is Taking Stock and I'm speaking with Sarah Mayers-West of the AI Institute and we're talking about the evolution of AI and the regulation around that. Um, Just, Sarah, maybe talk to me a little bit about some of the regulatory actions that are being taken now and who maybe in terms of countries might be doing this well? Sure. Well, I think, you know, the swiftest action that we've seen has come from within the EU um, using data protection law. Mm. So the Italian data protection regulator um, was able to institute a temporary ban on chat GPT on the basis that it violated the, the GDPR. Um, and so I think that's that's really useful um, to note that data policy is a kind of AI policy, and it is it has um, been really key in making early stage interventions. And mm. um, you know, other, other areas to watch certainly. You know, I think many of the competition regulators in um, the UK, in France. Um, the Dutch ACM, the U.S., they've, they've all started to circle around cloud computing um, and concentration in the cloud market as a, a potential problem. And so that, that would be one other regulatory space to, to play, pay close attention to. Yeah, and then, I- of course... EU AI Act um, is is in the process of, of final negotiations and, and um, is going to be uh, you know the first omnibus regulation um, that I'm aware of that tackles artificial intelligence specifically. Yeah, I did want to look at that issue of competition and 
in particular in relation to the cloud and cloud computing because by definition I suppose compartmentalization of of that cloud seems to be an impossible task can that be done well I mean it's a complex picture right mm. you know some of the places where there's most competition in cloud are firms that you know for a variety of reasons never made that jump in the first place and they're just now starting to shift over from you know, storing their information locally into the cloud market. Um, so I think that there there is space for, um, you know, alternative approaches. I think the urgency has really ramped up. Um, you know, if AI um, is being integrated essentially as a service um, that's tied into these cloud providers, um, we're likely to see it even further cementing of the dominant firms here, and, and that's why early and, and uh, you know active intervention will be key. Yeah, you just um, the, the companies, and you mentioned the big three there uh, a moment ago. The competition between those three in particular. What types of things are they doing to get ahead of each other? Oh, it's been it's it's hmm. been kind of code red um, within a lot of these these firms. Many of them are pushing out AI products before they're really ready. I right. think that we saw that with Google's Bard, for example. They, you know, there's been some um, reporting that folks inside of Google, you know, said this system is not ready for deployment. They've been developing, you know, versions of it since 2015, um, but they pushed it out in order to, you know, try and get some sort of like early advantage in in the market. Um, we're also seeing other kinds of conduct by firms that um, is potentially concerning. For example, Microsoft um, cut off access for several of its customers who, uh, you know, buy access to Bing data um, because of concerns that those customers would be using that data to develop, to develop their own competitor chatbot search engine. Mm. Um so there's there's a few fronts um, to to pay attention to. I guess the last may also be, um, you know, Amazon's announcement of its new Bedrock um, service. Um, essentially, creates a marketplace for access to different kinds of AI services um, on which Amazon also um, competes, and they're all tied into um, Amazon Web Services. So um, we're we're seeing kind of this bundling and, and tying uh, structure emerging in this market. Yeah, I did. I did look into Bedrock a little bit. It's very complicated, but essentially, to me, it looked like an app store within within the Amazon offering. That's right. And uh, OpenAI is is creating its own app marketplace. Google has its cloud marketplace, and that seems to be the model that that these companies are beginning to. Deploy. Yeah, and um, there were articles and, and, and a podcast recently. One in the Financial Times by one of the AI creators, and um, a podcast by one of the uh, initial kind of um, engineers, really high up the chain in Google. Both of them saying the same thing, which was, "Look, this thing is moving at a pace that we never expected." Now, some people take that debate and go all the way down the road of you know, AI is going to control us before we can control it. Where do you sit on that discussion about the pace and the movement of change? Well, I, I do think that we're seeing, you know, very, very swift action by these companies, again, to try and push these systems out into commercial use rapidly. And that should give us well reason for pause. You know, are these systems really ready 
um, for for everybody to to be able to put to use. Are there sufficient guardrails in place around potential harmful uses? You know, they're very easily tools for fraud at scale, for disinformation, for you know, kinds of different sort of cybersecurity vulnerabilities. Um, you know, have have they taken the necessary precautions to make sure that they are they are um, safe for for widespread use? Um, my suspicion is that the speed um, is likely exacerbating those harms. Mm. And that's exactly why I think that we should be focusing on the concerns, you know, right in front of us as opposed to sort of where is this technology going to develop down the line. You know, when I play around with, with ChatGPT, it, it does, you know, it is remarkable um, the way that you can hold a conversation, but I think fa- fairly quickly you start to run up against the limits of, of the technology too. Um, and that's been uh, the case for all different kinds of AI systems. Often they just don't work um, as as well as claimed. Um, and we should start from looking at do they comply with the laws that we already have on the books? Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that they do. Mm. I suppose a, a key distinction for people using these type of um, facilities is do you have enough knowledge to know what's right and what isn't right and what is completely wrong? Um, Sarah, I, I've heard recently George Mitchell speak and compare AI to um, the evolution, the industrial uh, revolution and that it will be as big and seismic as that so uh, it is certainly something that policymakers need to sort of get their arms around and, and pay attention to but for now we're going to have to leave it there I'm afraid. That's Sarah Myers West from the AI Institute Sarah thank you very much for joining us on News Talk Thank you for having me you're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. After the break, the Kinahan Hut feud featured heavily in the news this week. But have you ever thought about where the money goes and how cartels hide their ill-gotten gains? John Mooney of the Sunday Times is up next to take us through what he's found out in a special investigation. Stay tuned. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Now, John Mooney of the Sunday Times has been writing recently about the imaginative and somewhat unorthodox ways that criminal gangs and cartels like the Kinnahans have been hiding the proceeds of their criminality. And he joins me now to take us through the extraordinary world and extraordinary figures that are involved in the proceeds of criminal activity at a global scale. John, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Hello, how are you? Not too bad. Now, I want to start off with the Kinnahans, but we're going to look at the wider landscape and how criminal gangs and cartels are actually hiding their money globally. But take us through the the operation that the Kinnahan gang specifically um, are at. And indeed, some of the figures are just eye-watering. Can you take us through some of the numbers that involve, are involved in their global operation? Okay, so the criminal, or the, sorry, the Kinnahan cartel is not an Irish group. It's not even a European uh, transnational crime group. It's a global uh, enterprise at this stage. So organised crime gangs behave in certain ways and the Kinnan cartel, uh, you know, it, 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 it is following in that long-standing tradition. So they at the moment are reputed to have amassed a personal fortune of about 1 billion euros according to our intelligence services and that that would be the uh, assertion of the British and the American services also. So that money has to go somewhere and it has to go it has to be invested it has to be held within the banking system and laundered money or illicit money 
it travels throughout the international banking system like a virus in the bloodstream. So when you're talking about very entrepreneurial and powerful criminal groups like the Kinnahans, they usually have behind them a small army of financial advisors. And these tend to be people that have been involved in the world of finance, but are what you or I might describe as crooked. So a couple of weeks ago, we published a big interview with a man whom we gave the pseudonym Opal to. Uh, This person was a financier who was based in Bangkok. And he had been asked to set up, uh, uh, I suppose, an investment scheme to uh, invest 200 million sterling into various projects and Uh, around the world and this would be administered by trust funds that were held in various uh, tax havens um, like Mauritius, like Luxembourg, like the British Virgin Islands and parts of Malaysia and his, uh, it subsequently emerged that this money um, was controlled and owned by the Kinnahans. So this particular uh, amount of money was being held in a bank account in mm. Hong Kong, which uh, was being administered by an accountant over there. And he it was asked to set up a series of trading platforms to invest that in small amounts in different parts of the world. In other words, to move it, but most importantly, to disguise its origins. And they looked at everything from investing in Banksy artwork. They looked at uh, investments in very expensive fine wines and whiskies. They also looked at crisp cryptocurrencies um, and a whole plethora of different investments that not alone would disguise the origins of the money, but also return a profit. So to understand money laundering, it's really simple. You spend the money to disguise its origins. But what you try to do is wash it or launder it into the system that its origins become almost impossible to decipher. What you see around the world is that large, powerful, entrepreneurial criminal organizations, they will put huge efforts into this because these groups, they develop and they morph and they evolve in all the same way. And that doesn't matter, That that's regardless of whether they're Russian criminals, South American criminals, or European criminals, or indeed Irish criminals. They usually get so big that they morph or evolve into legitimate businesses. And until actually the Regency Hotel happened, um, the Kinhens were in that process. And a lot of people, a lot of analysts would certainly look at them and be of the view that if they hadn't have engaged in a bloody gangland feud with the Hutch Crime Organization, they probably would be now legitimate businessmen. And people like me would have grave difficulties in terms of naming them as criminals. Mm. Now, this um, gentleman who's operating under under the name Opal for the purposes of your article, he wasn't in contact directly with any of the, the Kinnahans. He was operating through a middleman. Um, but just... Um, that notion of uh, a crime gang evolving into what is the legitimate world and dealing with these financial advisors and financial institutions, presumably laundering money is becoming more difficult in the traditional ways because we're now living in a cashless society. So how important are financial institutions when it comes to actually washing this money in, in the modern era? Well, that's a matter of hot debate. Within the European Union, there are various financial 
checks and there are regulations that are supposed to prevent this. But you're looking at a big, big business. I mean, the Irish, say Irish crime, for example, is worth billions. Possibly the drugs trade is worth maybe 20 billion here a year. Mm. So it's almost impossible to stop that type of money from seeping into a legitimate industry. Cryptocurrency in some ways has revolutionized all of this. But again, once you cash out crypto, you have to do it in a certain way and indeed now that which which you can be identified um via the use of blockchain uh tech or tools that examine blockchain technology etc but but again it, it's almost sometimes very difficult to um overstate the sort of ingenuity that goes around this so if you're the Kinnans, you're buying hotels, you're buying big buildings, you're investing in uh, massive, um, you know, property developments, etc., in different parts of the world through various um, um, front men or mm. whatever. Um, if you're a small entrepreneurial drug dealer living in some part of Dublin, you might uh, maybe invest in a bar. You might, another uh, common technique is uh, barbers, for example, where they say they've cut 400 people's hair uh, each week when they really may have only done 100. And who's to know if people are paying in cash? So the the point of money laundering, again, Mandy, to, to, to emphasize this, is to take illicit cash and actually put it through um, a, a process whereby it can be lodged in a bank um, to disguise its origins. And if if that if if you, for example, are, are a young criminal and you are earning maybe I don't know hundred thousand per annum from say cocaine dealing, um, if you have to spend twenty thousand mm. washing that into uh, the system, um, so that you can access those funds. Uh, in a bank account and you know sustain a particular lifestyle from that that's just the cost of the business but if you can imagine if you're generating that sort of money and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger you could become quite wealthy very very fast and indeed i see lots of people that i know are heavily involved in organized crime and they to all intents and purposes would be regarded as by their neighbors and friends as legitimate businessmen and successful businessmen when in point of fact they're just laundering money or their their, their wealth is derived from uh, illicit activity. Mm. One of the things that um, Opal as it were was recommending was investment in US property but they didn't want to invest there why was that and and what eventually sort of disrupted his relationship relationship with this crime family? Well, that particular individual has a kind of fascinating story. So usually when people uh, contact me, it's usually a gripe or to some reason uh, where, which they were to explain why they're departing such sensitive inform- information. This particular man had been involved with people who were acting as front persons for the Kenyan cartel and uh, in the process of dealing with them uh, they had actually departed some money and paid some money themselves uh, to these people for with the purpose of investing that money and they were uh, they lost quite a substantial amount of money as a result of that so that was the motivation in terms of of revealing all uh, in generally uh, uh, the fact that the 
there's a couple of reasons why an organization like the Kinnan Cartel might be wary of making a lot of investments in a place like, uh, uh, you know, America. And that's for a number of different reasons. In Western democracies, there are natural barriers that stop organized crime groups becoming too big. Um, and strong and powerful and well-regulated uh, fine, uh, rules that govern uh, financial institutions are one of them. So the Kinnans, for example, they could possibly take the risk of making serious investments in the United States in terms of property and business. But to do so brings them into, number one, into the radar of American security services and possibly their intelligence services. But I think more to the point, the Kinnans now are not just a criminal organisation. They're involved with hostile states such as Iran. They're involved, they probably connections into Russian intelligence um, and they're involved in terrorist organisations. So they're, some, they're a group that are on the radar of not just police forces, but also but but also intelligence services and governments who have an interest in uh, what they might know about states mm. that they're in conflict with. So that might be more of an explanation as to why the Kinnans do not want to have their footprint on American soil. And of course, uh, that uh, US arrest warrant for them changed everything uh, around this time last year. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson and I'm speaking to John Mooney of the Sunday Times about where criminal cartels hide their money. You mentioned earlier, John, um, that one of the things that uh, our friend Opal was was looking to to explore for the the crime family was investing in art and even mentioning a Banksy. Just explain why uh, investing in an art world uh, would be a safe place for a, a gang like that. Okay, so criminals and particularly well-resourced and well-financed criminals have always traditionally invested in artworks and actually antiques as well. So the Kenyans are no different to that. The, the, the only difference that maybe that would set them apart is the amount of money they have to invest, but also the methods that they would use to do that. So this particular individual who was asked to to invest their money um, identified a company called Masterworks. And Masterworks is a perfectly legitimate company. They what they do is allow investors to collectively invest in serious art and valuable art um, in much the same way that you would invest in stocks. So you invo- you invest in a percentage of a particular piece of artwork and they, they make a profit on the basis that that artwork will rise in value and you can at a later stage sell your shares in that particular type of art so art is just the product that's invested on in it could be property it could be something else but masterworks would deal with art and the Kinnans um, had certainly explored the possibility of investig- investing in various art forms um, that Masterworks were offering and had went through all the various due diligence on that. And that, again, companies are very vulnerable to this because if you've got a, a front company that's a, approaching, say, a trading 
platform or a fintech company and offering saying they want to invest and you know they, most people don't really have the ability to check out the backgrounds of of uh, accountants etc who may be making uh, the approach and um, it's easy to become or be used by them so that was just one uh, sort of aspect of this particular conspiracy to launder uh, this 200 million sterling which they were which they were in possession of and needed to move mm, incredible stories and incredible figures it's a fascinating world but obviously not without severe human consequence but john thank you very much for taking the time to take us through that investigation today that's uh, john mooney from the sunday times thank you for joining us no problem Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on the News Talk app. From Friday mornings, it's powered by GoLoud. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with researchers Stephen Daunt and Simon Keane. And we had Hugo De Silva Scott on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.